0: In Alcoholics Anonymous, I guess, realize the seriousness of this illness, alcoholism, as well as anyone that lives, I'm sure. Since I came in this building this evening, I was notified that one of my friends whom I've worked with over the years, late this afternoon, committed suicide since I walked in this room. However, There's another side to this picture, and it's uh, (coughs) the art of developing a sense of humor. I was called upon this afternoon, late, to answer to this assignment. And the way I was called upon, the man who asked me said, you're it. In Alcoholics Anonymous, when you're it, you're it, that's that. Now, the reason he didn't ask me to be a speaker, I'm sure, was because he knows that I have diarrhea of the mouth and constipation of the ideas. <laughs> but this is no way a reflection on the speakers. However, it's my opinion that the longer Alcoholics Anonymous meetings are, the better they are. And don't go away, because we have a fine speaker to present to you now. A man who comes from Garden City, Long Island Group, from New York, my good friend, an acquaintance for many years, a buddy in AA, Yev G.
1: Thank you, Grant. My name is Yev G, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm very glad to be able to share in the meeting of the Salt Lake Group. And I would hasten to say that anything I may mention with regard to my ideas about the AA program are strictly my own. I do not speak for my home group or for any other group. And all of us in AA speak only as members who have found this program leading to a new way of life. They tell the story of Pat, who was about to receive the last rites, and the minister, the priest, looked at him and he said, Pat, do you accept the Lord as your everlasting Savior? And he said, of course, Father, I do. And he said, you renounce the devil in all his works. And Pat looked at him for a minute and he thought, and he said, Father, right now I'm in no position to antagonize anyone.
2: <laughs>
1: well, by the time I reached the doors of AA, I had antagonized about everyone there was to antagonize. And I was one of the fortunate ones who found AA just at the right time. And I got here by an unusual set of circumstances where everyone around me did just the right thing at a time in those days when we didn't have any counseling to guide families and employers how to handle an alcoholic that they wanted to help but they wanted to be firm with at the same time. But without any collusion and without any conspiracy and utterly unbeknownst to one another, my wife and my boss and my doctor and my banker, in the space of two weeks, all each took a corner of the the rug and decided to yank it out from under Little Yev. My wife came to me and in a very calm way without being excited when I was sober and she wasn't feeling hysterical and told me she just couldn't go on with the ups and downs of my periodic drinking because something was going to happen. There were children in the house She didn't know why I did these things and she wasn't mad, but if I could do something or find something to help myself, she would come back and be at my side. But either I would have to go or she would have to go if something didn't happen. She was quite serious and sincere and not at all just threatening or emotional. A couple of days later, the bosses took me into the private office. ...and they told me that although I might feel I was indispensable... ...the firm had started in 1867 and they'd gone for a long while before I got there... ...and they thought they could continue a while longer without me... ...if my long and protracted absences continued. This was another shock to my ego... ...and then the doctor said after he straightened me out coming to the house... ...that he wasn't coming anymore because he had a lot of sick people who really wanted help... ...and I didn't seem to want to do much about myself... And therefore, he preferred to treat other people. Well, all of this was bad enough, but I think the crowning blow was when I found the little man in the bank told me, don't come in at nine o'clock in the morning with a nightclub operator on one side and a taxi cab driver on the other and expect us to bail you out of trouble because you're overdrafted and you're overdrawn and you are no longer a valuable client. But you see, I had the kind of personality that operated on this basis, and my philosophy and set of values at that time were very sound and very solid and very mature. I figured that at home, I was such a charming and pleasant guy to have around between binges that my wife should put up with an occasional absence and let let it go. I figured I produced more at the time I was in the office than any of the other people, and that when tensions got too high or whatever it was and I needed to go out and relax and celebrate with clients, they should realize this and make allowances. I felt that the bank should let me overextend my credit because just to have my name on their books, along with the Whitneys and Vanderbilt's and a few of the other people, was to their advantage. And this was a rather inflated set of values, as you can see. And so, when this happened, all the defiance and all the resistance and denial was deflated because I couldn't have believed that my family would not find me indispensable. I could not believe that my firm would not put up with these periodic absences. And I was just not aware that I was not really needed in these areas to the point where they put up with almost anything. And so when they firmly but quietly told me that the jig was up with that indefinable quality and understanding that an alcoholic has found somewhere in his subconscious, I realized they meant business. And I realized that I wasn't going to get away with this anymore and that I wouldn't be able to put them off with false reasoning and excuses and hollow reasons for my behavior. Now, fortunately, in all of this, again, I was one of the luckiest. My boss happened to know about AA. He'd been involved in getting them a small meeting place. This was at a time when there were only 2,000 members of Alcoholics Anonymous in the world and less than 200 in New York City where I came into AA. And Anonymous was really anonymous. But he happened to know. And he told me that he thought I ought to meet the man that he had arranged this room with. And he told me I ought to see these people in these groups because he thought they might be able to help me. And he would take me to lunch to meet this gentleman. Well, I didn't come to AA throwing my hat in the air, I can assure you that. I came because there was a gun in my ribs. The boss wanted me to go. But at least he gave me a course of action. He didn't just say sober up or else. He gave me a chance to do something about it. He didn't know much about what it was that he was suggesting. In fact, he told me, I think these fellows, as they travel around in their social places and in the clubs, if they see someone drinking too much, they kind of cozy up to him and make friends and explain to him the error of his ways and help him to stay sober, See, he didn't know very much about this movement, and very few people did. But at any rate, I went and met my prospective sponsor, and he startled me, because he was not the Skid Row denizen that I had looked for. He was a quiet, well-groomed businessman, and when he told me he took a martini at a Christmas party and rode the 3rd Avenue L for three days as a result of that one drink, I said, boy, you know the story. You're my friend. <laughs> Because I started drinking at the age of 25, and I was in Alcoholics Anonymous by the time I was 33, and I have about 12 more years of sobriety than I had drinking years, and I came into AA when in my own bizarre, peculiar way of thinking I was still having a wonderful time. My wife wasn't having a wonderful time, and my bosses weren't, and my doctor and the family lawyer, none of them were having a good time, but I didn't seem to feel that I had any problem, and I thought this was the way to live to go around the plush line sewers of New York and have a good time with a lot of crony, phony crumbums who were getting drunk and not going home that night either. This was living. So, I never had any trouble sobering up. I could stop drinking for two weeks, two months, three weeks, three months, for periods of a time I wouldn't drink. But when I started to drink, and particularly the very last two years, a very strange thing had happened. I could not... Take a drink without going on and on, not just all night, but for four or five days, disappearing from people, not seeing people, no one knowing where I was until I'd exhausted my strength and had to be poured in a car and brought home. And this was a very sudden change, and I couldn't understand it, and underneath I was very frightened, because I didn't want it to be this way, and every time I took a drink, even two weeks after the last episode, I was convinced that next time would be different. I always said, don't worry, this time I'm not going to let myself get out of control. I'm going to drink like other people do, and the way I did not so many years ago. But each time, regardless of what I had to do the next day, this, after taking a drink with someone, I went on and on and on. And so, I was frightened, and underneath, even though I didn't come to AA with my hat thrown in the air, I must confess, I think underneath, I wanted some help. I wanted to know what was wrong. And so I was very fortunate in catching this in the early progression of the disease. I was early in catching it early in life after very few years of drinking. And so as a result of my boss's pressure and these other factors which pulled the rug from under me, I agreed to go to my first AA meeting. And clutching my wife's hand, I went down a long into a smoke-filled room where there were about 60 people and beginning that night I learned more about life than I had learned at two universities. I had learned living abroad and I had learned talking to many people that I was trying to find out facts about myself and about life because I had never really learned anything about people. I never knew what made people tick. I knew nothing about their sensitivities or their sensibilities or their needs. I only knew that people, if they were fun, if they were charming, if they were attractive, they were my cup of tea. If they were stuffy, boring people who went home and worked at a workbench, fixed their garden or were trying to get a graduate degree working in night school, to me this was pretty stuffy and I wasn't very much interested. And as for people's problems, people's needs and people's ideals and goals, I never paid much attention to them. And so I didn't know anything about myself. And I went to AA with one purpose, and that was to learn how to stop drinking, and preferably in the hope that someone would be able to teach me how I could get back to drinking the way I did the first few years when I drank. Maybe these people had a formula that would make it possible for me to drink with control. And so we went to that meeting together, and my wife said, now that you have a course of action and seem to want to do something about this, I will stand by, and we will hope and pray that it will work. And at that very first meeting, as I say, I began to learn some of the things that every alcoholic should know, because this was quite a place. We had some very learned people from the School of Experience. We had cum laude's from Bellevue's Psychopathic Ward. We had summa cum laude's from Rockland State Hospital, and we had some simple graduates of Creedmoor State Hospital for the Insane on Long Island because these boys had had it. These were the early days. And when I mentioned at a coffee break that I had two shirts and an automobile and I was only 32 years old at the time, they said, boy, you're too young. You haven't been hit enough. You've got two shirts and a car. You may have to go out and get some more experience. But <laughs> stick around. So the first thing that I liked about AA And I have come to call this experience that really began that first night the transforming process of Alcoholics Anonymous. And while I never have been in jail or smashed a car or lost a wife or lost a job, but as you can see, I came very close to it, I haven't much of a story to tell about past drinking history. And life really began for me when I attended that first meeting. And since then I have observed this process work in other people far more than in myself, but I can only tell you what happened to me as I went along with it and how it seems to me that this can work in any person's life. Because these two men that were spoken of by Leo in Akron, Ohio, ex-drunks, recovered alcoholics, must have been divinely inspired to have been able to put together a program that is palatable to confused, resistant alcoholics of every possible background and experience and yet it is palatable it is tailored so that the alcoholic will accept it and can utilize it and the first thing they said there are no musts now i had been hearing people say why don't you do this you got to do that can't you see you shouldn't do this why did you do this where were you why not why don't you why do you you should you order you gotta but nobody said any of this they said we have a program of 12 steps and these are suggested steps if you want the program to work, there is one must. You must have some faint desire to stop drinking. You must in some remote way believe that possibly your life is becoming unmanageable. And if you'll keep an open mind and even not admit it fully, there's nothing else you have to do. If you will keep clear headed and pay attention, we think you can find out if you're an alcoholic or not. Well, this, this was very palatable to me. And then they said, The alcoholics began to tell their stories and they were quite rugged stories and you might have felt, how could I identify when I hadn't done any of these things? But I got from these stories a feeling of worth. There was hope. If these men could go through all of this and smash their careers and lose their families and then find that there was in life a way of life and a program that they could adapt, With all they had lost, certainly there was something for me with all the incentives that I had. So I had a feeling of hope. And my sponsor said to me, no matter who you are or how badly you feel, and I was feeling very sick and depressed and shaky that night, you will find that it could have been worse, and we've found this, that none of these rugged stories here are so bad that someone hasn't been worse. And that reminded me of the story that a cousin of mine from Canada had told me about these fellows that played poker together every Thursday night and one of them always was sort of a Pollyanna. He always said, no matter what your problem was, it could have been worse. And so one night the boys went home and one of them found his wife and another man and he killed them both and committed suicide. So the next week when they met for poker, they said, well, we've got old Bill now, he can't say this it could have been worse. And so when he got there, they said, did you hear about last week, Charlie, what happened? Oh, yes, wasn't that terrible? But it might have been worse. What do you mean? Two people killed and he committed suicide. How could it have been worse? Well, he said it could have been the Thursday before and it might have been me. (laughs) But anyway... Anyway, I got a feeling of hope and a feeling of self-respect. And I began to see... And then they said, every one of them that night, something that no one had ever told me before. That one drink for the alcoholic is too many and 30 is not enough. That something happens to the alcoholic. They called it the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And that with one drink in the body, once we start, we have lost something. And no matter how charming, intelligent, capable, or brilliant we may think we are, this is as clinical as a diabetic. Once you can't take alcohol in your system with control, you cannot just become a social drinker again. And this obsession takes hold and you go on and on. And it has nothing to do with how long you can abstain from alcohol, but once you resume, if you find this happens and you lose control and on you go, you've lost the freedom of choice. Well, for my pattern of every six weeks, two months, three months, drinking periodically, always trying to drink and swearing I would never get out of control again, quite confident at this time it would be different. This explained to me why I couldn't drink. And having happened in such a short period of years, it was not difficult for me to understand and accept this. And I think very often that the problems that alcoholics have and the slips come because they don't feel that this applies to them. It's fine for the other fellow. But I don't know. I've got things pretty well squared away now, and I'm out of the doghouse and got a little money in the bank. Do I need those meetings? I think now that maybe I could take a drink or a beer with impunity. Well, I know that I'm never going to say, this time it could be different. I may be drunk tomorrow and we never claim that we're going to be sober more than one day at a time and we pray for strength to do that. But if I'm drunk tomorrow or on the way home or wherever it may be, it won't be because I said this time it's going to be different. Because John Barleycorn has convinced me. And so they said, this is a program of action. And you just don't come in here and sit in the bleachers and you just don't sit. It's not a lecture course. You get out in the game. You help out with the program. You help the other alcoholics and you go to work and do things around the meeting places and don't be aloof. Well, this to me was like the starting gun at a, at a race because I was always high tension, high pressure, always wanting to get into things. And so after the first two weeks when they started saying you must get into the game and participate, I was ready. They had a meeting of some of the inmates at Kings County, a psychopathic ward, and they have an hour off for relaxation, and they wanted an AA speaker, and I put my little hot hand up, and over I went to talk to these real hard-bitten boys. And they had a question period, and they asked me questions about peraldehyde. and I thought they were talking about formaldehyde. <laughs> and they asked me about NEMGITOL and Demerol and these things, and I had never heard of any of these things till I came into AA. And fortunately, there were a few old-timers graduates of the, that board, that were now good AAs, and they saw me floundering, and they came to the rescue. Well, that didn't daunt me. The next closed meeting, there were certain things in the big book, a few chapters I thought that should have revisions, and I sounded off on that. And then the secretary who answered the phone in the little clubhouse we had had a call late one afternoon, and a 63-year-old woman was very badly drunk at home out in Elmont, Long Island. Nobody could go, so I rushed out. I had a car. About five o'clock I got there and a few minutes later a husband came in, saw his wife in bed, half plastered, and me there, and he'd never heard of the 12th step. (laughs) So I had to call back and get the girls to come out and protect my honor. And my sponsors were watching all of this frenetic activity with considerable concern and some amusement, so the next meeting they got hold of me and they sat me down and they put a hand on each knee And they said, Look, Yev, we told you to participate, but you're abusing the privilege. (laughs) Now, you sit down here, and we commend this program to you. We have a program here of 12 steps. And we particularly commend the fourth step. Uh, Even though your impeccable character may not have many defects, we think that you might take a look at these steps and uh, sit tight before you go out and save all the drunks in the universe you're supposed to work on yourself a little bit. And this was good sound advice because I was going up like a rocket and it was only a question of time when the thud would have been heard in some of the old beer tubes that I used to haunt. So I sat for a while and I had been going through the legwork phase of AA. You know, the members uh, who have been in AA any length of time, we see this happening there's old Charlie he's up at the hospital he's making calls on everybody he's making speeches he's at every meeting he's making the coffee he's so busy that he wouldn't have time to get drunk but about eight months later old Charlie has an emotional crisis he can't find the toothpaste he breaks a shoelace and he's taken drunk and everybody says no not old Charlie he's the busiest man in the county in A.A. But old Charlie was doing just what I was doing, not paying any attention to the basic part, what has come to mean to me the meat and grist of the program. He was running and busy, but he never got into the 12 steps. He hadn't changed a bit. And the minute something happened, bang, the old reflex action reaching for the bottle. And so we must keep busy. And they were right when they said, don't be idle, don't be just a listener, don't withdraw share, but we can share in a more balanced way than I did. And bless my good sponsors for pointing these things out. And so I started to pay some attention to the steps, to the part of the program which has been mentioned tonight, where we try to get enough objectivity and insight so that we can begin to notice things in our personality, in our emotional life, in our temperament and character, which are To be seen closely allied for our need to use alcohol the way we do. Now I wouldn't admit in the beginning of the first few months any of these things that they talked about applied to me. I fought vehemently against many of the things the group members told me for so long. I just couldn't see them. My pride wouldn't let me admit them. Over a period of time I've come to observe these in myself and recognize them and correct some of them. And the good brethren are always there to pounce down if I find I'm getting out of hand and going back to the old screwy thinking and so forth. But it takes time for us to get into perspective, I think, and get out of the egocentric shell that we're in. When we first come to AA, even with the few years of drinking that I had, I was completely wrapped up in a complete ball, hard ball of egocentricity. Self-centeredness, not necessarily completely selfishness, just so completely engrossed. And the longer we drink excessively, the longer we get in this. Now, to unravel and get some insight into ourselves is going to take a little time. And I didn't like a lot of the things my sponsors wanted me to listen to. These philosophers, some of them would get up and say, all alcoholics are emotionally immature. This I would not tolerate. I could not be emotionally immature. I had two automobiles. I was a junior member of the firm. I belonged to the Harvard Club. And beside, I had three kids. Now, how could anybody with three kids be emotionally immature? I didn't know what in hell they were talking about, quite frankly. And you can get an idea of how much I knew about what makes a human being tick. But I found out about this because people began to identify some of the things they did as illustrations of what they meant by this. And I learned that going around hotel grills, And ballrooms and restaurants and night spots in New York City and bribing piano players and band leaders to play my song when I came in the room was not the idea of emotional immaturity of a man of 30 with two children. When I came into the room, I wanted them to play my song. And I put a lot of money and investment into that because Gardner had arrived, and who cares? But my ego inflated and I felt like a million bucks. And gradually I began to see that this was not exactly what you would call a mature set of values. And then they said alcoholics are grandiose. Why, I said, I can't be grandiose. I'm just a good natured kid and slob. I don't think much about myself. I just try to get along. And then as they illustrated some of the things that they meant by this, I remembered the very last episode I was on in a little place, buying drinks for everybody, telling about the great deed I was deal I was going to put on for my firm, put them on the map, put me on the map, everything was going to be wonderful. And at the very moment up the avenue, the bosses were meeting and saying, shall we fire him now or wait till he gets back to the office? <laughs> I began to learn what it meant to be grandiose and see some of these things. And these were the things that were getting me in a state of tension and getting me so excitable and tense. That later i found from my associates in the office that they made a book a week or ten days before each episode that gardner would get drunk and nobody ever failed to win the pool i never let them down once they could always tell it was coming and they said they could tell because i began to get a kind of light in my eye and my cheeks would get flushed and i'd begin to get a little more frenetic than usual and they'd say well he's going to blow in another week or 10 days i never felt anything coming on I always started to drink in a usual acceptable place. But this was obvious to them, and these factors were involved in this. And so gradually and bit by bit, we have to identify with the things that are in our own personality makeup that bring about the tensions and pressures and the need for the release through alcohol. And nobody pushed me very hard to point out any of these things, But when I came to talk about them openly and acknowledge that maybe they did apply later, if they felt that I was slipping back into any of these emotional patterns, they were good enough in a loving way to slap me down and tell me the big shot complex was beginning to show a little bit. And in AA, we can accept this from the fellows and gals that we know understand us and who do it for our own self-preservation. The point I want to make is that out of all of this, We come to learn our strengths and weaknesses over a period of time if we pay attention to the program. The moral inventory isn't just looking back at all the trouble we've caused and all the grief. We find there's an asset side. We're not going to be the perfectionist, the builder of the greatest bridge, the painter of the greatest picture, the president of the firm and the captain of the team, but that doesn't mean we're all bad. It doesn't mean we can't adjust to life and accept ourselves with the assets we have. And I don't think we can get serene and relaxed in our sobriety until we begin to get a little bit in perspective. And it takes time. And it was only until I could begin to notice some of these things and really apply them without getting mad about it and resentful that I began to feel comfortable and relaxed and I found it was easier and easier not to worry about the first grin. And as a woman speaker said in New York lots so long ago, the job is not to stay away from the first drink, it's to grow away from it. We gradually grow away from that first drink. Now this is a tall order. It's a tall order to make over our self-centered selves, even with the help of the group. And the first year I was in AA, I didn't want to hear anybody talk about God and higher powers and stuff like that. I wanted the practical things, the idea of AAs being on tap, keeping me busy, going to meetings, discussions, all of these other things. And I kind of closed my ears when I heard speakers say that if it wasn't for that higher power, I wouldn't be here today, and you've got to turn your life over to God if you want to make this program. For that period, I didn't pay much attention to this. But I began to wonder how so many people that were coming in after me, whose troubles and The story before A.A. was so vivid and so troubled and deep, who were beginning to put their lives together piece by piece and restore themselves to usefulness and constructive living. There must be something beside Mary and Bill and Joan and John and these groups that's behind this. There must be a force, because these are people of every problem and educational and difficult types of background who have had smashed lives and drunk for many years something must be at work. And so I began to listen a little bit more to the people who told of a reliance on a higher power. Some of the ones that weren't overly vehement had a message. And for the first time, I began to open my mind and my ears to this. And I began to talk with these men and women, and I found that they had a recovery and a sobriety that was a little more solid and a little deeper, perhaps, than many of the others. Because Sobriety is only the first step, a step, a foundation which we must maintain in our program. But if we do not change, if we do not use the steps and recover from the illness of alcoholism, and not only arrest it by being sober, but change so that we've grown away and lost the pressures of alcohol and the need for it, this is not recovery. And to bring about the recovery of these thousands and thousands of people that kept coming into AA gradually. There must be a force. And these people got me to read a few books. They were not theological in nature, but they were practical. They were helpful. I began to go to hear Emmett Fox, who was lecturing at Carnegie Hall, who was a very simple, palatable type of, shall we say, divine science, as he calls it, or metaphysical teachings, which at that stage of the game was about the next step for me, and I benefited from this. And strangely enough, I started to go back to church with my wife. And I don't know why I was doing all of these things, but something began to become apparent to me. And then one day it dawned on me that what these men and women who spoke of this higher power, and how they found it helpful in growing in the program of recovery, what they had was a personal relationship with a higher power, or God, as they understood it. No formal doctrine or dogma, strictly a belief that a higher power was concerned about them and that in times of difficulty they could find strength and help. And they called this higher p- power by a variety of things in the beginning. The man upstairs, the senior partner, but I noticed that gradually over the period of months and years most of them began to call him God. And this went on to the point where I began to feel that I too was developing a personal relationship with God and I called him God and I had demonstrations that when I got into some deep trouble and I hung on and stayed sober and turned to this higher power of mine and turned to God that I could find strength and help. And I was called overseas right to the front lines fairly early in the war and I had some experiences there where we had no groups. And then I had to hang on to my higher power because I didn't have any meetings. studied for orders and entered the ministry. And I have come to believe in this transforming process of Alcoholics Anonymous that those early founders were divinely inspired and guided because they realized that if you take a loving fellowship who can understand the early needs of the alcoholic in his confused state and be patient and bear with him and fill the void that's left when he gives up his drinking and his drinking associates. And if you can gradually help him to come and know himself, his strengths and his weaknesses, and accept himself, and begin to transform and change his personality and strengthen his emotional structure, so that he is recovering from alcoholism rather than getting sober. And if we superimpose this on a personal relationship with God based on a faith of an individual in a higher power as he understands him to begin with that if we have this we have the ingredients which make for a long-term recovery and useful living no we don't come to a.a. throwing our hat in the air and i don't know anyone that ever did we come to take our medicine and we come the first few meetings because we've got to and then we come because we feel a little better and maybe something keeps us there we don't know what And then comes the day we're sitting there and we're not thinking about, will the speaker say something to help me? Will he help Joe that's come to his first meeting tonight? We're losing ourselves in concern for another person, first with another drunk, and in time we're concerned about other people, non-alcoholics are people too. And then we learn that we like to come and help another person and we worry about the other drunk. And then one day we wake up and those founders put a kicker in this program, And we don't know about it till one day we wake up. And we're aware of a surprising and sudden thing very often. We find that we like this way of life that we have found now so much better than what we had before that we prefer it and we wouldn't want to go back to it. And in this way, we can break the compulsion and the need for alcohol and John Barleycorn hasn't much of a chance. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Yev. The miracle of AA really is the paradox. And I have come to believe a little saying that I carry around with me all the time, people who go through the fire don't easily fade in the sun. We learn in AA that the best things in life are free. We learn more in AA as we go along that there's only really one way to have anything, and that's to give it away. I think some great man said, heap wealth at the feet of foolish men, but upon my head pour only the sweet waters of serenity. Give me the gift of an untroubled mind. And I should like to personally add to that of an untroubled heart. This is AA. I'm convinced in my experience that happiness is just like perfume. You can't possibly sprinkle it on others without getting it all over yourself. This is a happy way to live. This is a wonderful life. The life of an alcoholic. I want to thank you people kindly for making me it and I'm going to ask my good friend Leo to lead us in the serenity prayer
3: how eloquently Jim's story tells us that we cannot live by meat and bread alone, how we must breathe the air of the spirit. In AA, practically all of us know someone with whom we have especially identified. In our jargon, we say, well, we've clicked with that chap. Years ago, in 1940, not long after the A book came out, I was lying upstairs in the little clubhouse at old 24th Street. It was a sleety, bitter night, and up came old Tom, our janitor, who was now on the job and, by the way, being paid for it. Old Tom knocked at my door. I was lying on the bed suffering from one of my imaginary ulcer attacks. And Tom says, Bill, he says, there's some damn bum from St. Louis down there. Do you want to see him? Oh, I said, what, not Tom tonight. Well, yes, Tom, send him up. I heard a slow, labored step on the stairs. And finally, a figure appeared in my doorway. And his coat was drawn about him. And it was covered with sleet. And he wore a hat which looked something like a cabbage leaf, also covered with snow. And it was 11 o'clock at night. And he'd come there to see me. And when he threw back his coat, I saw he was a clergyman. He had been the one who had discovered the resemblance between A.A.'s steps and the Ignatian exercises of his Jesuit order. Ah, but far far more than that. He proved to be one of the greatest examples of the grace of God that this society knows. And as we sat there and just joyfully chatted, about this and that somehow that room seemed illuminated
0: you could feel the presence and almost see the light Father Ed
3: bring my store teeth, And so if I am not being understood, if you just wave a handkerchief, I'll try to do something about it. I asked my friend, a very recent vintage, Dr. Shoemaker, to say a prayer for me and for you during this talk. He said, God is with you. And I think you knew what you know what he meant, and it is reassuring. And I think in the spirit of the eleventh step through prayer and meditation, try to improve our conscious contact with God. Uh, may I suggest a few thoughts on the three words of our assignment. God we and understand. And if you will listen with your hearts, as I know you'll have during this whole meeting, rather than your ears, I think God will bless us. Man trying to understand God somehow uh, reminds me of a definition of psychiatry, which I just heard a day or two ago. It is the uh, id being examined by the odd. And I think that that could be our breakdown of topics. The id, the primary reservoir of power. God. Examine could mean understand, and the odd is us. First of all, us. We are three things, I think. Alcoholic, alcoholic anonymous, and agnostic. Alcoholic, which means to me that we have the tremendous drive of fear, which is the beginning of wisdom. We have the tremendous drive of shame, which is the nearest thing to innocence. Sackville Mallins, honorable secretary of all Irish alcoholics of both Irelands, likes to quote some author whose name I forget. And all and he says, And alcohol doth, no, and alcohol doth do more than Milton can to make straight the ways of God to man. Alcoholics Anonymous, not merely alcoholics, but Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill spoke last night of the outside bouncer in Alcoholics Anonymous. John Barleycorn. But I've always felt that there's an inside bouncer who is crueler. And that is a corporate sneer for a phony. And who of us is not a phony? I think that is in all groups. You have the problem of people of link side virtue. And that is a drive. Third qualification, I think we are agnostic. I believe there are three groups qualitatively in AA. First of all, they are the devout who to whom who didn't seem to be able to apply They're old-line religious truths. They were agnostic as to application. Then there are the rusty. The priest who passed the man in the ditch before the uh, Good Samaritan helped him. A very good priest friend of mine who says, I really think that the first thing we shall say when we get to heaven is my God, it's all true. I think all of us are rusty in some phases of either our substantive or applicational beliefs. And then there are the sincere 18-carat agnostic who all, who have difficulty with that spiritual hurdle. Uh, The second word is understand. And I think as we move from an obscure and confused idea of God toward a more clear and distinct idea, I think we should realize that our idea of God will always be lacking, always to that degree unsatisfying. Because to understand and to comprehend God is to be equal to God. But it will grow. I'm sure that Bill sitting in that chair and Dr. Bob, whose angel is probably sitting on that oddly misplaced empty chair, are growing in the knowledge of God. An old German saying is, and it applies here, very few of us know how much we have to know in order to know how little we know, and I'm sure Dr. Bob and Bill would certify that The approach to this not understanding, first of all negative, and the first step as we examine ourselves who was our latest God,
2: see, uh,
3: is uh, a, a fine approach to God. It was the approach of Peter the Apostle. Lord, to whom shall we turn? I think we should realize that there is... I doubt if there's anybody in this hall who really ever sought sobriety. I think we were trying to get away from drunkenness. I don't think we should despise the negative. And I, I know I have a feeling that if I ever should find myself in heaven, I think it will be from backing away from hell. Now, there... At this point, heaven seems as boring as uh, sobriety does (laughs) to an alcoholic ten minutes before he quits. However, there are positive approaches, and the 12th step mentions one, I still weep, that the senators of the movement have dropped the word experience for awakening. Experience is one of the ways that's mentioned by the 12 steps. And in the second step, another way, belief. Now experience can be... kind, Sudden, passive insights like Bill's experience, like the grapevine story of that Christmas Eve in Chicago, those are all in the valid pattern of Saul having that sudden, passive insight as he was struck from his horse on the road to Damascus. There are other types, probably dearer to God, since they are commoner, and those are the routine, active observations of what? I am sober today. I am sober today. This meeting this morning Uh, this convention this week, and as experience distills and condenses, it becomes suffering. The other night, Bernard Smith, chairman of the AA's, uh, trustees—I get that hierarchy all mixed up— <clears throat> uh, said something which to me was so good that I took it down. He said, the tragedy of our life is how deep must be our suffering before we learn the simple truths by which we can live. Sometime before Whitaker Chambers became a well-known character, in his sister publication. He was on time then. He wrote in life an article called The Devil. And quoting Satan, Whitaker Chambers says this. Here's Satan talking. And yet it is at this very point that man, that monstrous midget, still has the edge on the devil. He suffers. Not one man, however base quite lacks the capacity for this specific suffering, which is the seal of his divine commission. Uh, the second approach, which is mentioned in the second step, came to believe. I've, I've known some of my Catholic friends who at that step said, well, I believe already, so I don't have to do any caming. And in a great burst of kindness, they kept drinking to let the Protestants catch up with them. <laughs> <laughs> Belief is uh, capitalizing on the experience of others. Blessed are the lazy, for they shall find their shortcuts. What others? Your sponsor. The AA experience of two decades on two continents. Newman says... That the essence of belief is to look outside ourselves. Dr. Thiebaud seems to think that psychiatrically the great problem is the turning of our affection from self outwardly. Faith is hard, as hard and as easy as sobriety, and has been called the greatest of our undeveloped resources. What experience should we seek? What what beliefs should we accept in our quest for God? The third word then would be God. Bill Early wrote a letter, I have it, in which he said, as far as how the alcoholic." Shall work out his dependence on God is none of AA's business. Whether it's in this church or whether it's in a church or not in a church, whether it's in that church or this church, is none of AA's business. In fact, he implied, I don't think it's any of the alcoholic, um, the member's business. It's God's business. And the AA's business is charted in the 11 steps. Seek through meditation and prayer to find God's will and to seek the courage to follow it out. And not in the spirit of propaganda and abusing this opportunity, but rather to share what I have found to be God's will, I'd like to offer some thoughts I do believe that the problem, which half of this room has had, in attaining sobriety, I have had in attaining belief and faith. Uh, where do you start? Well, I, I believe there's something to be said about Starting at the nearest manifestation of God. Where is God nearest to me? Does the fish soar to find the ocean? Does the eagle plunge to find the air? That, we ask, of the stars in motion, if they have rumor of thee out there, not where the wheeling systems darken and our benumbed conceiving soars, the drift of angel pinions would we hearken beats at our own clay shuttered doors somewhere out in the swirling universe light years beyond the reach of our strongest telescope halley's comet is making its round some of us saw it in 1910 some of you in this room will see it in 1986 those are called the perihelion the perihelion are the points at which they are closest Halley's is closest and obviously to study Halley's comment now is a waste of time. It must be done at 1910 or it must be done in 1986 when it's closest. Where is God's perihelion? Where is God's nearest? When is God's nearest is God nearest? Life' magazine in this recent article on the great religions and the great leaders, mentioned, of course, all the significant beliefs available, systematic beliefs. Moses, Muhammad, Buddha, none of them claimed divinity. None of them ever claimed that, for routine purposes, that God is visible on earth, save one, and that is the man who said, "He who seeth me seeth the Father." That's blasphemy, a lie, or the truth. He said, "I am the Father. I am one before Abraham was. I am." And even to escape crucifixion, he wouldn't hedge on the accuser's uh, indictment, who felt that he was guilty of blasphemy. And his answer was to the claim, Thou hast said it. Dostoevsky says that faith in the divinity of Christ is the Christian faith pure and simple. And down the ages, that has been the central belief of his followers. Of all the life's series of religions, the Christianity claims to present God at the closest perihelion. We know AA's Twelve Steps of Man Toward God. May I suggest, in God's Twelve Steps Toward Man, as Christianity appeals to me. The first step is described by St. John, the Incarnation. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And he turned his life and his will over to the care of man as he understood him. The second step, nine months later, closer to us in the circumstances of it, is the birth, the nativity. Third step, the next 30 years, the anonymous, hidden life. Closer because it was so much like our own. The fourth step. then three years of the public life. Closer to us because it met our cravings, our aspirations. His teaching, his example. Our Lord's Prayer. The fourth, the fifth step. But his emphasis in that public life was to people like ourselves—sinners, wine bibbers, poor, skid row panhandlers. The sixth step, the fifth step—I guess six, six—bodily sixth, suffering, including thirst on Calvary. The sixth, the next step, soul suffering in Gethsemane. That's coming close. How well the alcoholics know and how well he knew humiliation and fear and loneliness and discouragement and futility. Finally death, another step closer to us, and I think the pieta, where a dying god rests in the lap of a human mother, is as far down as divinity can come and probably the greatest height that humanity can reach. And down the ages, he comes closer to us as head of a sort of a Christian's anonymous, a mystical body laced together by his teachings, whatsoever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. I can fill up what is wanting in the sufferings of Christ. I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick. I was hungry and you gave me to eat. The next step, tenth, The Christian church, which I believe, is Christ here today. I think a great many sincere people feel, and they're in the room, they say, I like Christianity, but I don't like churchianity. And I can understand that. I understand it better than you do because I'm involved in churchianity and it bothers me too. But, actually, I think that sounds a little bit like I do love good drinking water, but I hate plumbing. Now, who likes plumbing? Uh... um, and you have people who won't take AA, see? They like sobriety, but the so-and-so with AA. Uh, and then the 11th step are several great big inch pipe lines or sacraments of God's help. And the 12th step to me is the great pipeline or sacrament of communion. The word that was God. Became flesh and becomes our food as close to us as the fruit juice and the toast and the coffee we had an hour ago. Now, oh, we know the story of alcoholic flight from God and movement toward Him. Lord, Give me sobriety, but not yet. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I don't think there's an AA in this room who isn't worrying about one of those steps. And praise God, Lord, let me make that step, but not yet. And I think the picture of AA's quest for God, but especially God's loving chase for the AA was never put more beautifully than in what I think is one of the greatest lyrics and odes in the English language. Written by a narcotic, and I think alcohol is a narcotic, so he might be able to make it. It's a poem called The Hound of Heaven that likens God to a hunting dog Let me just pull off a few of the lines, and I'll sit down. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him. And under running laughter, up bisted hopes I sped, and shot precipitated a down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But, and here's his pre- description of God, with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed and majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me, and I'll skip Naught shelters thee who will not shelter me. Lo naught contents thee who contentest not me. In the rash, lusty hood of my young powers, I shook the pillaring hours and pulled my life upon me. Grimed with smears, I stand amidst the dust of the mounded years. My mangled youth lies dead beneath the heap my days have cracked and gone up in smoke have puffed and burst as sun starts on a stream now the long chase comes at last the end that voice is around me like a sounding sea bursting sea and the voice says in conclusion And is thy earth so marred, Shattered in shard and shard, Lo, all things fly thee, but thou flyest me. Strange, piteous, futile thing, Wherefore should any set thee love apart? Seeing none but I, God says, Seeing none but I make much of naught, and human love needs human meriting. How hast thou merited of all man's clay, clotted clay, the dingiest clot? Alack, thou knowest not. How little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignobly save me, save only me? And this I find to it. All which I took from thee I did but take not for thy arms but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies has lost I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand and come. And the alcoholic or the non-alcoholic answers, Halt, by me that footfall, is my gloom after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly. And God's answer, Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest, thou drovest love from thee, who drove us Me. Thank you. Dear friends, is it not as I have told you? There goes a man that we'd all like to to be like. Now, sitting just beyond him is another man that we'd all like to be like. I thought as I listened, how many thousands of hours have some of us in this room, including me, spent in deriding the men of religion? And yet is it not true that they have taught us all we know are things spiritual? Isn't it true that compared with their examples, we're only a little long a little way along the road. We have in AA a saying that principles ought to come before personalities. Well it is through Sam... that most of our principles have come. That is, he has been the connecting link for them. It is what Abby learned from Sam and what Abby told me that makes up the linkage between Sam, a man of religion, and ourselves. how well I remember that first day I caught sight of Sam. It was a Sunday service in his church. I was still rather gun-shy and diffident about churches. I can still see him standing there before the lectern. And Sam's utter honesty his tremendous forthrightness his almost terrible sincerity struck me deep I shall never forget it I introduced you one of the great channels One of the great streams of influence that have gathered themselves together into what is now AA, Sam Schumick. Bill gives me a chance to talk to AAs, he says things about me to other people in my hearing, which if I said them about him in the hearing of other people, he would say was bad for him. The rest of us suffer from egotism just as much as any alcoholic does, and it's just as bad for us, I'm afraid, to be flattered. I got well flattered the other day. When I first got here, a gal that I had never met before said to me, Are you an alcoholic? And I said, No. And she said, Well, you talk like one. Now, just to get this record straight, I have always felt that Bill gave me a great deal more credit for having anything to do with getting this amazing outfit started than I really should have been given but Bill's perceptions are very deep and as we have noticed in many of the meetings where he has spoken to us his memories are very sharp and so I just cheerfully accept these allegations of his because one of the most joyous things in my whole very joyous life has been the association that I've had with the people in A.A., and I am deeply grateful for the privilege of being here with you for this tremendous occasion. Last autumn, at his 20th anniversary dinner, I first heard Bill give the story of the various strands which, woven together, have made the strong cable of A.A. We all know by now that the first things that got into his mind as offering any real hope was talking with some men in whom there was the beginnings of a real religious experience. One of them is here now. They had begun to find this through the old Oxford group in its earlier and, I think, better days, and much of its work centered at that time in my old parish, Calvary, on Gramercy Park in New York. I take it that it began to be clear quite early in the movement's life that Dr. Jung's simple declaration that science had no answer, and Dr. Silkworth's incalculable help from the medical angle, and William James's great wisdom in the varieties of religious experience Still, left the need for a spiritual factor that would create a kind of synthesis and offer a kind of positive dynamic. The problem was how to translate the spiritual experience into universal terms without letting it evaporate into mere ideals and generalities. And so, immediately after step one, which concerned the unmanageableness of life, came step two. We came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. The basis of that belief was not theoretical, it was evidential. Right before us were people in whose lives was the beginning of a spiritual transformation. You could question the interpretation of the experience but you couldn't question the experience itself. In the third and fourth chapter of Acts is the story of the healing of a lame man by Peter and John. A lot of ecclesiastics wanted to know how this came about. And the apostles told them that it was through the name of Christ that this man was healed. And it says, and beholding the man which was healed, Standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now, you can fight a theory about an experience, but you've got to acknowledge the experience itself. He has been, I think, supremely wise in emphasizing the reality of the experience and in acknowledging that it came from a higher power than human and leave the interpretation part pretty much at that It would, I think, have been easy, and must have been something of a temptation, to go into the theological business. Here, the evidence was. It was evidence of spiritual power. All right, then, let's define the power. But that would have run against several possible difficulties if they had said more. Some people would have wanted them to say a great deal more and define God in the way acceptable and congenial to themselves. It would only have taken two or three groups like this, descending from one another, to wreck the whole business. Moreover, there were people with an unhappy association with religion, a dead church, or a dull parson or some church-going people whose work weekday lives did not support their Sunday profession. And that would have added another factor to be overcome as if we didn't have enough already. Also there are the agnostics and the atheists who either say that they don't know anything at all about these ultimate realities in the universe or possibly that they disbelieve in God altogether. I would like to quote for those who believe themselves still to be without faith in God A wonderful word from the Roman Catholic Spanish philosopher Unamuno, who said those who deny God deny Him because of their despair at not finding Him. For an outfit like this to become dogmatic would have been fatal, I think. So they stuck to the inescapable experiences and turned people, told people to turn their wills and their lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And that left the theory and the theology, as Father Ed has just been saying to us, important as they are to the churches to which people belonged. And if they belonged to no church and could hold no consistent theory, then they had to give themselves to the God that they saw in other people. That's not a bad way to set in motion the beginnings, I think, of a spiritual experience. Maybe that's what we all do at the point where religion changes over for us from a mere tradition to a living power. Now, I believe in the psychological soundness of all this. Don't think that applies to alcoholics alone. I think that applies to everybody who is seeking genuine spiritual faith and experience. When one has done the best he can with intellectual reasoning, there yet comes a time for decision and for action. It may be a relatively simple decision, such as to enter fully into the experiment. I think the approach is much more like science than it is like philosophy. We don't so much try to reason it out in abstract logic. We choose a hypothesis, we act as if it were true and see whether it is, and if it's not, we discard it, and if it is, we are free to call the experiment a success. You can sit about in a vacuum, whether that be the privacy of your own room, or an academic classroom, or indeed a pulpit, and discuss the truth of a theory forever and it may do you no good. It's when you let truth go into action. It's when you hurl your life after your held conception of truth that things start to happen. If it's genuine truth, it will, I believe, accomplish things on the plane of actual living. If God is what Christ said he is, he is more eager to help us than we are to be helped. He does not trespass on man's freedom and we can reject Him and deny Him and ignore Him as long as we like. But when we open the door on a spiritual search, with our whole lives thrown into it, we shall find Him always there, ready to receive our feeblest approaches, our most selfish and childish prayers, our always entirely unworthy selves, and get out to business with us. The experimental approach seems to me to be of the essence of our finding the help of a higher power. We first lean on another human being who seems to be finding the answer, and then we lean on the higher power that stands behind him. William James, in the famous passage in the Varieties of Religious Experience, says this. The crisis of self-surrender is the throwing of our conscious selves on the mercy of powers which, whatever they may be, are more ideal than we are actually and make for our redemption. Self-surrender has been and always must be regarded as the vital turning point of the religious life. That was almost a turning point in my thinking, that sentence. Self-surrender has been and always must be regarded as the vital turning point of the religious life. He goes on to say, one may say, that the whole development of Christianity in inwardness has consisted in little more than the greater and greater emphasis attached to this crisis of self-surrender. Now that, of course, becomes the heart of all real religion. Most of us come to God in the first instance from a need. If you want to say so, we come selfishly. But I would like to point out that before we can possibly be of any use to anybody else, we must find the beginnings of an answer for ourselves, so that this may represent a necessary step in progress. There's a great hue and cry today on the part of some people about those who seek benefits from God. I would like to know where in heaven's name a bewildered and defeated person is going to go for the help he desperately needs if he doesn't go to God for it. Of course he's concerned about himself. He can't help it. He ought to be. He must be if he is ever going to be made useful to other people. But later on, he must also grow up and stop just using God and begin to ask God to use him. Stop asking God to do what he wants and begin to try to find out what it is that God wants. Many a person tells you they've given up faith. they prayed for something they wanted and it didn't come, and either there's no God or else he hasn't got any interest in them. What childish nonsense. How can anybody expect God to listen to the half-baked prayers that a lot of us send up to him? I mean, have the world in a worse chaos than it is now in five minutes, Prayer is not telling God what we want. It's putting ourselves at his disposal so that he can tell us what he wants. Prayer is not trying to get God to change his will. It's trying to find out what his will is. To align ourselves or realign ourselves with his purpose for the world and for us. That's why it's so important for us to listen as well as talk when we pray. Why it's good to begin these meetings with silence. Now oftentimes, we come feverishly and willfully, and we've just got to quiet down before God can do anything for us. While our own voices are clamorous and demanding, there isn't any place for the voice of God. When we let that willfulness cool out of us, and that's the thing most of us non alcoholics get drunk on, just willfulness. Just wanting life on our own terms, and it's as neurotic as any neuroticism ever was. Everybody that's away from God and trying to do his own will in defiance of God is half crazy. I say till our own clamorous, demanding voices quiet down, we can't hear the voice of God. When we let that willfulness cool out of us, God can get his will across to us as much as we need to see directly ahead of us. And Dandy said, in his will is our peace. Now, a lot of people don't like the weakness that is implied in that word surrender. And I was deeply thankful to hear Dr. Thibault use that word and The medical doctor the other day also. These people like to think that they are strong characters who can take care of their own destinies. That is always fictitious thinking. Everybody in this world is some kind of a weakling. And if he thinks he is not, then pride is his weakness and that's the greatest weakness of all. People may think that they have overcome or never been overcome by the overtly disreputable sins, but who of us avoids selfishness and self centeredness and the love of adulation and the love of power Four and pride? I think that man is fortunate, whose problems are of such a kind that they get him into trouble, so he got to do something about them. What it temper and pride and laziness and scornfulness and irritability and indifference to human trouble and that god awful littleness which is the worst thing about most of us in a day when everybody's meant to be bigger. Wasn't those things got us into difficulties? For they're just as bad as anything that ever got you into difficulty. Nobody is strong, and the people that think they're strong are only self-deceived. We act as if character and reasonably good behavior were the end of all existence. The real questions in life, which underlie these matters of behavior, are definitely of a religious nature. And they have only a religious answer. An answer that comes from God. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing here? And where do I go when I die? Those are questions that unanswered leave us really without direction, without mooring, and actually without values. But science hasn't got any answer to those things. And philosophy only has the answers of good human guesses. Religious faith is the one candle in man's darkness, in the mystery of life. If Christ came down from heaven to represent God and speak for him, we have got an answer. The lesser revelations to prophets and seers are of the same nature but not of the same authority as Father Ed has been suggesting to us. But all truly wise men begin with the acknowledgment of their finiteness, their darkness, and their need. When we get through to God, by whatever name we call him, or rather when we let him get through to us, then we begin finding light and the answer. Now I think the great need of our time is for that worldwide spiritual awakening. There are many signs that it is upon us. Western man is gradually getting it through his head that he owes the greatest of all blessings, human blessings, the blessing of liberty, to God and religion. When Benjamin Franklin was in Paris at the end of the 18th century, he took his son round one day to call on Voltaire. And as they were leaving, he asked Voltaire to give the boy a blessing. Well, I can think of better people than Voltaire to ask for a blessing, but that's what he did.